the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon to you, 5 after 5, here on your basic Thursday, the 18th day of February, in case you weren't keeping track. Hope you're doing well today, and good to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We're here each weekday from 5 until 7, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Coming up a little bit later on in tonight's show, we'll get you an update on the markets for the week, what all's going on in the world of money. Dan Beltran joins us with the money update. That'll be tonight at 5.15. Halfway into the first hour tonight, best-selling author. In fact, boy, she's a busy woman. She has won, published 11 books and won, I've lost track of how many awards she has received for her books Dawn Scott Damon will join us. You'll remember her from the Freedom Challenge that we did uh, back toward the tail end of last year. Dawn is going to join us tonight to discuss an extremely sensitive topic. And um, it it relates to uh, not the details, and I want to be very careful here, not the details of what has transpired in relationship to Ravi Zacharias Ministries, but rather the fallout and the broader lessons that are critically important for all of us. So we'll get to that discussion a little bit later on in tonight's program. Right now, as we uh, leap off, we talk about um, a proposal that's making its way through Congress called the Equity Act. Now, the Equity Act would essentially put the hiring practices, potentially, of faith-based organizations in jeopardy and would create additional religious freedom concerns for Christian schools, churches, ministries, etc. Now, if this, in fact, passes, it could widen the definition of so-called public accommodation in a way that, as I say, could put faith-based institutions at risk. Um, Most frighteningly, it could be interpreted to, for example, that a Christian school require that said school give access to men who identify as women into the women's private spaces like locker rooms, changing rooms, gyms, things of this sort. Wow. Okay, we're back at the topic once again. How do we respond? Let's get more details now as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. And um, Brad, this is an alarming proposal at many levels. Oh, it certainly is, Craig. And and the fact is there are no uh, exemptions so it's very broad. You know, in the past, public accommodation would mean things that are like restaurants, hotels, uh, transportation entities. Uh, but this is much broader than that. Uh, and in fact, it's basically a, a policy that would be uh, would, would apply to anything that is in any way open to the public. Well, that would include a church service. Uh, it's 
generally open to the public. I don't know of any churches that have tickets to attend or prior reservations or uh, you have to be a member of, of the church in order to attend. So um, it, it's very, very broad. It would apply to their hiring practices. So theoretically, this passes, and you have a youth minister who comes out and says, "I want to." They're, they're changing their gender, and they have a, a gay partner. And uh, you know, yeah, I'm sure the church would have, you know, want to have love and compassion for that person, but they also wouldn't want that person to continue uh, as the minister of the, the the junior high and high school youth programs in their church. Well, this would prevent that person from being uh, uh, fired. Uh, Christian college universities uh, could be prevented from uh, being able to have males dormitory and female. They would be forced to allow a, a male who says he feels like he's a female to be in the girls' uh, dormitory, use the girls' restrooms, um, and, and, and the like. Uh, and then, of course, we have the hiring issues of schools, um, the, the teachers, the professors who have lifestyles or wish to change their gender. It would, it would tie the hands of ministries to follow the standards of God's Word when it comes to sex, sexuality, and sexual identity. Uh, it would be an egregious uh, step, uh, atro- atrocious attack on religious freedom um, in the United States, and we would have to, the only back, uh, backdrop to, to overcome it would be uh, the United States Supreme Court. And how is something like this that, that does not have a religious exemption built in to some degree? I mean, I, I would imagine, perhaps at even the, the deeper level, um, if a measure like this on face value were to be passed, couldn't it also potentially be in violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? That's a good question. The problem is it would effectively truncate uh, and negate a large portion and application of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So uh, it's so the extent to which a religious freedom uh, violated this Equality Act, uh, the uh, religious freedom would, would not uh, be, be protected. That's how serious uh, this is. That's why I said the only thing left uh, to protect religious freedom if this becomes law is just is the United States Supreme Court declaring something, uh, an application to be a violation of the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause. Uh, that's not where we want to be in the United States, nor uh, our schools, our churches, our colleges, uh, public, you know, uh, places of worship. Um, I think people understand also, Craig, that this is uh, much more of a, of a threat, much closer to uh, of a threat than people realize. It already passed the House, the Democrat-controlled House, last year. Uh, it failed because the Republicans were in control of the Senate, so it didn't, didn't go through. But this, what we're talking about, already once passed the Democrat-controlled House. Nancy Pelosi is totally behind this. So... Now it's going on in the Senate. The good news, the Senate could potentially block it with a filibuster, uh, forcing the other side to get 60 votes. That's encouraging. But in the next, if the next midterm election, uh, the Democrats get the 60-vote majority in the, in the Senate, uh, this will become law. There will be no exemptions for churches, people of faith, our, our schools, Christian schools, etc. cetera. Um, and um, we're going to have some very serious, serious threats. Uh, to religious freedom as we know it. Well, and there's another issue here, and I, I know I'm going to take flack for this, so folks, please uh, spare me the email, but, you know, the the notion that, and you l- kind of alluded to this, well, you know, if it passes, it's going to be something that, you know, we're going to have to wind up in the Supreme Court. You know, I, I think we need to be cautious in being mindful that just because of the new appointments of the Supreme Court, there is nothing under the sun that is absolutely 
guaranteed. And I realize, again, the right. makeup of the court was slightly different, but it was just last year that the Supreme Court ruled in one case that a Michigan-based uh, funeral parlor, as I recall, um, had an employee who had worked for them, I guess, for some period of time and showed up one day and announced that he had transitioned from uh, male to female, and it was a Christian-owned funeral home, and they said, no, this just really isn't compatible with uh, with our clientele and, and uh, what we're doing here. And as a result, it ended up in court. It made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And didn't the Supreme Court, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't the Supreme Court in that case um, actually rule in favor of the transgender employee? They did. In fact, Neil Gorsuch uh, was the uh, the traitor, if you will. Uh, and it shocked all of us in, in his redefining sex the term sex to, to be sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, totally went against the principle of, of original intent of legislation. It had absolutely no intent back in the 60s to apply to, uh, as, as he did, as he applied it. So it was very shocking, very disappointing, and that applies to the workplace uh, across the United States already, uh, the, the extent to which that would apply to Christian institutions, religious institutions. I think that we would, um, I think we'd prevail at this stage. But uh, the Equality Act, um, and then also to take its passing and then, and then say Justice Thomas has a heart attack or Alito has a heart attack, uh, you know, we could end up suddenly being at a very, very imminent threat. So you're absolutely right, Craig. We just should not rely, uh, you know, as, a lot, as the Supreme Court bailing us out, particularly when the Supreme Court is still um, basically a 5-4-6-3 majority. It's, it's uh, still very vulnerable as our freedoms are. So you, you essentially have helped me make my point, and that is let's let's make good law, good legislation on the the leading edge, instead yeah. of bad legislation that winds up in supreme in the Supreme Court and now has to be fought and argued. And it's anybody's guess as to how things could come down. What's the timetable on this? Do you get a sense? Yeah, the uh, it, it's going to be this legislative session. It's, you know, the bill's drafted. Uh, you know whether they have a, they're going to get enough votes. I I don't I don't think they will. The Democrats are all just about, I think all of them are behind this. Uh, you know the persecution of the of the churches, the ministries, the Christian colleges. Um, I think just about every single one. Maybe Mansion of West Virginia might oppose it, but I think all the others are uh, on the record. I think it was 45 last year uh, of them were on the record of supporting this. Uh, so. You know, it, you know, if they were able to persuade, say, some who are sort of, you know, flip back and forth, like Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, uh, maybe this the, the senator from uh, from Maine, Collins, or the one from Alaska, and, then, and sort of they might be able to piece something together. Uh, the midterm election becomes very important because they may only need to pull up five five more senators if they can persuade uh, those who are often termed rhinos uh, to go along as well. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's going to be a serious issue and one that people will be taking into consideration, uh, particularly the midterm elections, because uh, of how shocking it, the support is for it uh, on uh, throughout the, the, the Democrat senators um, occupying the Senate presently. Well, we'll uh, continue to follow the uh, development of the Equity Act and uh, see what transpires. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More online at pji.org. That's pji.org. 516 on the clock. Let's get a look at traffic. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. You'll recall if you were with us at the top of the hour, I said we're going to have a market update. That was an absolute unmitigated falsehood. (laughs) Not through any intent of our own. It just happened that way. I will tell you, for those interested, um, all three indices down for the day. We saw a bit of a decline yesterday, and uh, the concern, of course, is We've seen remarkable retail numbers. Retail in the month of February, I'm sorry, the month of January, up 5.8%, leading some to speculate. Could this suggest to Washington, D.C., that more stimulus money for small businesses is not necessary? And so Wall Street, a bit nervous. Down again today, the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 119 points, the NASDAQ down 100, and the S&P down 17. Not earth-shaking, but... It is what it is. Okay, now we've uh, we've made good on our promise to give you a Wall Street update. We're going to turn a corner into a topic right now that I would suggest to you, perhaps if you have young ears within earshot, you may want to busy them somewhere else. We're going to deal with a sensitive topic. And I, I want to lead off by saying that while... The what will appear to be the initial focus of our discussion today um, is kind of the the launching pad for the deeper, more important topic. Uh, we're really not here to cast stones or aspersions in anyone's directions. The unfortunate news is simply what the unfortunate news is. And if you're not aware of it, um, it is very widely known. And I will share with you that if you've not heard it, once you've heard it, you will be equally as heartbroken and shocked as myself and so many others. A few months ago, I want to say back maybe in August or September, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries released a statement regarding an external investigation into allegations against Ravi Zacharias. Now, I will tell you that that preliminary statement was very disturbing. And late last week, the ministry issued a final 12-page report that moved it from disturbing to horrifying. I have read the report. I will tell you that I was shocked, saddened, and dismayed when I read it. It presents what appears to be credible and, frankly, from the position of the ministry organization, irrefutable evidence that there had been a long-term pattern of sexual immorality that involved numerous women in numerous countries at the hands of Ravi Zacharias. Now, while that hurtful statement sort of settles in, I think we all need to be mindful that, but for the grace of God, right? We know from Proverbs 16 that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And I think certainly if you think about such shortcomings, such as pride and arrogance, that that terminology in no way seems to fit the impression I think that most of us had of Ravi Zacharias in his teaching, in his debates, in his public speakings. If you're someone who had an opportunity to meet him in person, even in the one-on-one exchanges, 
Um, what we saw, at least in the public, Robbie, was humility and I believe true devotion to Christ. This is in no way to impugn the nature, basis, strength, integrity of his faith, his relationship with Christ, or the validity of his teaching and apologetics. But it does demonstrate that he, like all of us, was a man that had clay feet, and that he, like all of us, has that vulnerability to um, struggle with the flesh. Paul himself talked about the necessity of dying daily to the flesh and how difficult that that can be. I want to be important in emphasizing, and we're going to leave this aspect of the topic, but I want to really emphasize that I know that there are those that will question their faith when Christian leaders fall. I, I recall myself some of the scandals that hit in the late 1980s that involved some very well-known mainstream so-called televangelists. And even though I'd been in the faith well over a decade by then, caused me to ask some pretty serious questions, as maybe you did you too if you were around and, and uh, were walking in faith at that time. When, uh, when Christian leaders fall, or as they do to the degree that apparently Ravi did, um, there may be some who came to Christ through that ministry that will ask questions. They were influenced by his speaking, his writing, reading his books. What are you supposed to think? Well, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that faith leaders, pastors, Bible teachers are not God. They are not perfect. They did not create you. They did not die for your sins. And if your primary faith and, and sort of the anchor of your faith is in a Christian leader instead of in Christ, instead of in Scripture, then that's on you. And if you're putting your faith and reliance in an individual or a personality, I'm going to suggest that you need to ditch that right now and instead replace that anchor of your faith in Christ alone, in Scripture. Um, that is the proper object of your faith, not in another human being. I don't care how articulate or marvelous or wonderful or incredible your Bible teacher might be or Bible study leader or your pastor. He can support your faith. He can encourage your faith. He is not the anchor of your faith. Christ and Christ alone must singularly be the anchor of your faith. I think in conclusion to me kind of putting this in context for you, it's important that we be in prayer for Robbie's wife, for his daughters and his son, Few, if any of us, can imagine the depth of their grief, not only in losing him physically in life about a year ago, May, as I recall, but now losing him again in a fashion that is maybe even more painful than death. So there are lessons to be sure to be learned there, but I want to come full circle to the broader, more important lessons when it comes to issues um, of an individual that preys upon others more accurately, and we see the statistics all the time that are 
pretty disturbing, pretty disquieting that one in five women in America at some point in their life will experience rape. One in five, 24% of the U.S. female population. And in eight out of ten of those cases, the woman actually knew the perpetrator. We're going to spend some time today talking about finding healing. If you have been on the receiving end of that unfortunate set of circumstances, if you have been the victim of abuse, how do you find healing? How do you dig out, so to speak, of the dark place that you feel you've been sort of pushed into by this experience? And most importantly, how do you find liberty, freedom, and restoration? Multi-award winning author Dawn Scott Damon joins us on the program. Dawn, as you know, was with us through the entirety of our series, um, The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You, based on her best-selling book. Joins us now to discuss her latest book, Telling, A Guide to Finding Healing by Telling Your Abuse Story. And Dawn, thank you so much for being with us tonight. This is a topic, boy, I wish we could be talking about anything else under the sun to be sure we're not going to devote time going into any of the specifics. I think the, the subject matter of Robbie is what it is. Folks want to know more, they can go to the ministry's website. More information is available there. Um, I, I think, though, the broader story that needs to be told here is just how frequently these cases of abuse take place and just the kind of destruction that happens to hearts and lives as a result. Yes, well, good evening, Craig. It's great to be with you again, and and sorry under these circumstances, here we are again. And you're right, this is one of those areas where we don't want to necessarily go into all of the details of it, but just our heart is grieved. You know, it's just so painful to once again find ourselves in a place where a leader, influential leader, has taken advantage of that power if you will, and that lives have been damaged. But I appreciate your opening comments that, you know, our faith and our hope is in God and God alone, and He is trustworthy, and He will never fail us. So amen to that. But it's good to be with you again. It really is, and I think important um, to, to underscore the fact that we're really addressing two topics here. If someone is hurt and wounded by the behavior of a significant spiritual leader and Christian influencer, um, that's one thing, and you need to address that in relationship really to where your relationship stands with Christ and kind of your, your relational priorities, so to speak. And not, not to say that we don't all have spiritual mentors and, 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 and pastors and Bible teachers that influence our lives and so forth. We do, and that's, that's all good and appropriate, but none of those individuals is ever a substitute or replacement or can be above our relationship with very God himself. That having been said, yeah. the broader and more important topic, perhaps, of dealing with the abuse how to recognize it in others, how to address it if we've been victims ourselves, and most importantly, how to find freedom. And, and that really comes down to um, the, the core of what we'd like to focus in on our conversation tonight. So let's do this. I want to take a brief time out so that we don't have to interrupt what Dawn has to share, and we're going to dive into 
details pertaining to her new book, Telling, A Guide to Finding Healing by Telling Your Abuse Story. Best-selling author, Pastor Don Scott Damon with us tonight. We take this time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Pastor and best-selling author Dawn Scott Damon with us tonight. We're talking about her latest book, Telling, A Guide to Finding Healing by Telling Your Abuse Story. In the broader context of this, Pastor Damon, so much of this is surrounded by tight lips, secrecy, look the other way, there's nothing to see here. Um, it seems to almost be a chasm mm-hmm to move from the shame, the guilt, the secrecy mm-hmm. to the point of telling. And my goodness, uh, how, how does, in, in, in your viewpoint, that fit into the healing process and how do people even begin to consider sort of uh, the crossing that, as I said before, that chasm? Yes, that's a powerful question. You know, um, Craig, they're probably estimated that 42 million survivors of sexual abuse live in America. And so obviously sexual abuse is very pervasive. And when we begin to tell our story, that is evidence that we have begun the healing process. And not telling can indicate that we're still bound and deceived and carrying the weight and, and caught up in the lies that are often common to survivors, um, lies that would say to us things like, you know, it's, it was my fault. I don't want to tell anybody because, you know, I brought it on to myself. I somehow deserved it. Can you imagine going through your entire life believing that your sexual abuse was your fault and you're carrying that, that guilt, that false guilt? Um, not telling also says that, uh, you don't recognize that some of your current problems today are probably related to your past abuse, that you're carrying the secret of your abuser when telling frees you of that weight and gives you strength because you're not designed to carry the weight of lies and false guilt in that shame. Not telling says, um, I don't value myself. I'm diminishing what happened to me, I'm reasoning it away. I'm saying, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. I survived it. Or or maybe not telling is fear, bound by fear, living your life afraid of not being believed, afraid of being blamed, afraid of the consequences, afraid that, you know, you'll be talked about unkindly. Sometimes we don't tell because we admire the perpetrator and and we've been told that it would be our fault if we tell and that we'll ruin everyone's lives. That, you know, there's a lot of threats and lies put on us by the perpetrator. So, uh, so there's, the there's almost that. a sense then that this is, this is an acknowledgement because so often the pain, the guilt, the shame is so deep, so profound that the coping mechanism, so to speak, has has been to mm-hmm. to keep quiet, to keep it all in, and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. E- as a result, boy, that that sense of everything from from anger to resentment to the root of bitterness all gets a chance to really grow deep. And the only way you can start that process, then you're suggesting of healing, 
is simple acknowledgement, almost as we do, for example, in salvation. It begins with the necessity to acknowledge, hey, I'm, 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 I'm a sinner in need of salvation. In this case, we're not necessarily saying that you were engaged in, in sinning, but you've been sinned against, haven't you? Absolutely, sinned against. And, and the most loving thing you can do for yourself and the most freeing thing you can do is to tar- start telling your story. And that doesn't mean you have to go public with it. You can tell a trusted advisor. You can tell. You can call someone on a hotline. You can tell your therapist, a friend that you trust. But telling your story is the beginning of healing because, first of all, you're telling yourself the truth. You're coming out of disconnection or even distortion. You're coming out of lies and denial, and you're saying, I deserve, I'm worthy enough to acknowledge what happened, to grieve for me, to feel the pain, to allow myself to feel this anger, to tell my authentic, true story, because I'm, I'm worthy of that. I deserve that. I'm safe today. I'm, I, I'm good enough. I deserve to find this healing. I, I deserve to laugh. I deserve to be free. I don't have to carry the guilt anymore as some form of punishment for being that naive little kid that got abused. So telling is very powerful and, and, and that's so very necessary. And it really comes down to, I think, perhaps also that sense that as you're able to bring yourself to do that, it's it's in part an acknowledgement that what you experienced is not something that you've brought on yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. Because so often, isn't it true, Dawn, that many victims feel as if, well, you know, I did this. Um, I, I somehow invited this, either because I'm not a worthy person or I'm not worth loving, and of course it varies in the nature and, and degree of, of the style and type of, of abuse that took place, uh, be it physical, sexual, emotional, maybe a combination of all three. It, it, it varies certainly, from again, from case to case. But is this a scenario then where that telling also helps to, to acknowledge the fact that I am an individual worthy of love, worthy of respect, mm-hmm. and unfortunately in this set of circumstances, I didn't receive it? Yes, you're hitting the nail right on the head. And I know for me, I definitely thought it was my fault. And and so many survivors that I've worked with, that is like the Mac Daddy lie, like it, like it was my fault. I deserved it. I brought it on. And certainly I've been told that it's my fault. And I don't tell because I think I will be blamed for it. I should have known better. I should have responded differently. And you feel embarrassed, you feel ashamed, and you feel a a lot of fear about retribution or punishment. So when you tell, it's like smashing that lie to smithereens. You you recognize, wait a minute, wait, I, I will tell, I will shatter the silence. And there is so much power that comes from finding your voice again for the first time perhaps finding your voice and saying and and, and it's like it breaks that spell that's on your you know in your psyche your psychology that says it was my fault to saying no i'm not responsible for this and i put responsibility squarely on the shoulders 
of the responsible person who is the perpetrator. And I recognize I am setting myself free from the guilty verdict that I've put on myself. I'm making a jailbreak. It's not my fault. I didn't do this. It's never the fault of the child or the victim. Pastor Don Scott Damon with us tonight. The book is called Telling, The Guide to Finding Healing by Telling Your Abuse Story. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Best-selling author, Pastor Don Scott Damon with us tonight, talking about her latest, Telling, A Guide to Finding Healing by Telling Your Abuse Story. Is it fair to liken this, Don, to uh, this, this, this lack of telling or failure to acknowledge, kind of the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid over a deep, infected wound? The the cover-up kind of hides it from the rest of the world, but it doesn't mean that you're healed. doesn't mean that you're out of danger. In fact, that wound can be infected and be festering down below the surface. It can lead to significant health problems to the point of even potentially losing a finger or a limb, depending upon what their injury is. Is it sort of the same, sort of the, the spiritual equivalency of that? Yeah, that's a great analogy because it's exactly it. You know, it's just like one time in, when I was a teenager, I was in a car accident, almost killed, and it knocked me unconscious. I got out of the car and said, oh, I guess I'm going to go home now. Just completely out of my, you know, obviously I was out of my right thinking in a concussion. I'm just going to brush myself off and go home now. That's how I handled my abuse, too. Oh, I guess this happened. You were, I was devastated. You know, I I had wounds, massive wounds, and I, you can't just brush yourself off and say, oh, I'm going to go home now, because when it's over, it's not over. You lose the sense of, of intimacy with people because you have a secret, and secret brings guilt. Secrecy brings isolation and abandonment. It brings embarrassment and shame and... So, yeah, when you just put a Band-Aid over something and say, I'm just going to go on and pretend that it didn't happen, you're not living in reality. And you start struggling. I mean, I had anxiety attacks and depression and eating difficulties, sleeping difficulties, all rooted in and related to the fact I had a secret that was eating me alive and I needed to tell someone. I also had a lot of self-hatred and loathing because... Because I couldn't tell anyone, I was mad at myself. And the more I held that secret, the angrier I got, the more self-loathing and, and scolding, if you will. You should have told someone. You should have spoke up. You should have stopped it. You didn't do that. And I ended up not being able to grieve my loss, grieve my innocence, grieve the things that were stolen from me. So I just felt like my feet were in cement. I was paralyzed. I couldn't move, I couldn't talk, and yet I'm still trying, just like that car wreck, I've been smashed to pieces, but I'm just going to walk home now. <laughs> it wasn't very effective. Yeah, it's it's amazing how paralyzing some of these defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms can be that we kind of use to, to deal with the trauma at the moment, but recognize that uh, 
seldom, if ever, do they prove to be permanent long-term solutions. Let me ask you this, and I, I'll say I have a feeling a series is coming on here. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> dealing with this topic, when you when you suggest to listeners that the beginning of the process of healing um, is to tell, I guess it raises two big questions because this is so often just shrouded by guilt and shame be it, you know, uh, self-imposed or from the experience, the question becomes, how do you tell and who do you tell? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I knew that was coming, yes. So um, there's different ways of telling. You know, when I talk about telling, I'm not talking necessarily right now about reporting. That's ultimately the best thing to do is reporting. It's just something that happens right after the sexual abuse happens, but all too often, and you know the statistics that you shared earlier, out of one out of five women being sexually abused, it's probably more like one out of three. But because women don't tell, and and men don't either, but because we don't tell, we don't get a real statistic. But starting with telling, I'm referring to. Most of us who have kept our abuse story for years and years and years, and we don't even know how to tell. I just ministered to a girl this last week. I'm the first person she's told her story to, and she's uh, in her late 30s. So we first of all find someone that's trustworthy to tell. And um, for the sake of time, I won't go into deep detail here, but... Find a trusted individual that you can tell, and maybe at first you just tell your story without a lot of emotion. Maybe you just tell the facts. This is one way where you break out of denial and you actually do say, no, this this really did happen. And you come out of minimizing what happened to you, and you just get used to hearing yourself tell your story. And we know now by neuroscience, they tell us, Healing comes even just by speaking it out loud, letting the, the words come out of our mouth. I was abused. Yes, that happened to me. And we just begin to shatter that secrecy. After we get used to just telling it, then we can tell it a second pass, another time through with embracing our feelings and our emotions because a lot of women when they first start telling they feel they're going to fall into this black hole of emotionalism and i'll never get out and they feel like they're going to be re-traumatized in the telling so you want to make sure you're with someone perhaps who is skilled or very sensitive that it that does not happen to you and you can tell your story you do not have to be re-traumatized you do not have to be re-victimized there's a very safe way to tell your story. So we first say just tell it with the facts, then go through again a second time or a third time and allow yourself to feel that emotion and engage emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and connect, put yourself more deeply into your story. So there's a process involved. And I'm glad you said that because it seems to me that while for some it might have been a, a one-time event, others obviously could have been serial abuse, but mm -hmm. it, while it might have been just a one-time event in terms of the, the damage, the wounding, the, 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 uh, the offense, healing process is just that, isn't it? it, it it's going to be something that will be a process and will take place slowly and over time. Am I, am I reading that correctly? Mm -hmm. 
You've got it. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, here I am, you know, 25 years plus into my healing and, you know, I still will find nuances where I get to get alone with my journal and the Holy Spirit and say, okay, you know, I just discovered that I still have this twinge right here. What is that about, Lord? Show me what that is. And I maybe I feel trapped in a situation that brought back those emotions of when I felt trapped or when I wanted to move, but I couldn't. And so I had to play possum, you know, like I was literally pretending I was unconscious so that the abuse would go away. And saying, why did, why did I just stand there and not respond to that person just now? And so I continued to work through my healing. So definitely a process. But once you start getting through it, it's, it's a journey with God that's it's really exhilarating in many ways because you just feel the freedom coming and you do feel as if you connect with yourself, you you have more empathy towards yourself and other people and patience and gosh, I discovered, hey, you know what, I have an opinion about stuff. I have talents and skills I didn't know were there, and I can actually do things with my body. I I learned how to water ski when I was 52 years old. Like, I have taken ownership of myself and my body, and it's just so worth the journey. Process indeed, but very worth it. Yeah, and remarkable, because it is, as you you suggest, really um, a reclaiming of your identity, your self-worth, your value as a human being, your value from the perspective of God, and and maybe having to unlearn a lot of lies that you were told and, and relearn or learn for the first time some things about yourself and some facts about how God sees you that you've never thought about, never encountered, or if you heard about, thought about it, read it, never accepted it because you allowed the experience, the negativity um, of the experience um, and the lies that you were told to kind of, you know, set up shop and, and be at home in, in your heart and mind. And so this um, this healing process, as we say, is, is really a step-by-step one and one that oftentimes, as Don Scott Damon suggests, begins by telling. The book is called Telling, A Guide to Finding Healing by Telling Your Abuse Story. And I'm sure, Don, in the coming days and weeks as this um, unfortunate circumstance that we talked about earlier um, gets more traction and is more in the news, uh, more people will be triggered or uh, will will maybe now come to a point of having to confront uh, the pain that they have been uh, holding, the shame that they have been um, dealing with for many, many years to the surface, to the forefront. And I, I hope you'll be uh, be willing to come back and spend some more time with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for having me on, and I would love to do that because I agree with you. Definitely that's going to happen, so we'll be ready. Don Scott Damon, the book is called Telling, A Guide to Finding Healing by Telling Your Abuse Story. If you want to get more information about this new book, you can check it out online. You can go to Pastor Damon's website, Don Scott Damon, D-A-M-O-N, DonScottDamon.com. That's DonScottDamon.com. Six o'clock from KFAX.